Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Podcast from the authentic inland Pacific Northwest. Today I'm going to uh, offer you segment three of my discussion of hepatocellular carcinoma. So let's just get right into it. We've been talking about um, HCC for the last two episodes and we're linking obesity and metabolic syndrome and diseases that are associated with type uh, linked with type 2 diabetes, therefore metabolic disorders that can lead to hepatocellular carcinoma via the pathway of hepatosteatosis. We talked about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease leading to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis and uh, ultimately, depending on whether or not that uh, leads to cirrhosis of the liver, to the various stages of cirrhosis, and finally to um, hepatocellular carcinoma. So we went through all of that uh, paradigm, uh, disease paradigm, and now what we're going to do is get more into some of the intracellular phenomena that occur that are associated with this uh, cancer. So today's the 22nd of May, 2019. I'm Dr. Dan Guerra, and uh, again, this is my podcast, Authentic Biochemistry. So just to recap, pelcellular carcinoma, or HCC, is the dominant form of primary liver carcinoma. It constitutes about 90% of that disease worldwide. Obesity is, remains a primary risk factor, along with type 2 diabetes, and uh, hepatitis B and C uh, infection, as well as certain aflatoxins, alcohol, tobacco, and a constellation of ingestion of illicit and pharmaceutical drugs. Anything that can intoxicate the liver can become hepatotoxic, can lead down the non-primrose pathway of uh, hepatocellular carcinoma. Obesity is an independent risk factor for the disease, but patients with alcoholic cirrhosis and what's called cryptogenic cirrhosis, uh, such as those linked with ferroptosis, uh, are also candidates to uh, develop this severe deadly cancer. Because it's a liver, metabolism plays a key role in HCC. And we talked about the transcription factor, uh, hypoxia-inducible factor, HIF-1-alpha, last time. And when that is regu- when that regulation is inhibited and HIF-alpha is not degraded via the ubiquitination pathway, that can lead to an upswing in certain metabolic pathways, including aerobic glycolysis, which is also linked to a phenomenon called the Warburg or Warburg effect, which basically means when there is plentiful oxygen, atmospheric oxygen, you still run glycolysis rather than running the TCA cycle oxidative phosphorylation. So that's aerobic glycolysis and all of its metabolites, and indeed some of the enzymes in that pathway uh, may play pleiotropic roles in uh, the progression of uh, HCC. So that's what I want to focus on today. A paper was published recently uh, in Biochem Biophys Acta Reviews on Cancer. This is actually an April 2019 paper. Uh, the volume on that is 1871, and the pages are 331 to 341. 
So I'm getting some of the information I'm going to talk about uh, this afternoon from that recently published review. Again, BBA, Reviews on Cancer, Volume 1871, April 2019, pages 331 to 341. Okay, let's get into what that talks about. The ultimate glycolytic pathway enzyme, ultimate meaning the last one, is pyruvate kinase, and it catalyzes, of course, an irreversible transphosphorylation between the high-energy intermediate phosphatidylpyruvate and adenosine diphosphate. And what's produced, what the products of that reaction are, are pyruvic acid, which can then lead into either lactic acid synthesis or to acetyl-CoA or oxaloacetic acid synthesis. That's that in the TCA cycle in those latter two. Um, and ATP is the other product of pyruvate kinase, ATP. So in a healthy physiological state, the pyruvate made from that reaction, PK, is either completely oxidized to carbon dioxide via oxidative phosphorylation to produce more ATP, and that's always in the presence of sufficient oxygen. Or as I just said, it could be converted to lactic acid when oxygen tensions are limited or exhausted, such as in an active skeletal muscle. So that's not the liver, but that's just normally what can happen when you deplete oxygen levels. Normally you can then synthesize lactic acid, and then lactic acid made in muscle, for example, can be sent back through the bloodstream to the liver, uh, and that's called the Cori cycle. And ultimately, that lactate can be used for gluconeogenesis to synthesize hepatic glucose via using the energetics of beta-oxidation of fatty acids from the NADH and FADH2 made from that oxidation, ultimately reoxidizing those two nucleotides and synthesizing ATP via oxidative phosphorylation in the mitochondria of the uh, hepatocyte. We're not going to be talking about that today, though. We're going to be talking about tumor metabolism, and tumors corrupt glucose metabolism bioenergetically often. And what happens is they enable an excessive growth and proliferation when glucose metabolism has been altered. And when, they, when you reach that, what I'm calling a pathobiochemical axis, you get increased glucose uptake, and that's via the GLUT transporters, and you get lactic acid production. All of that happening or going down in the presence of molecular oxygen, called the Warburg effect. The other term for that is simply aerobic glycolysis, and that's what dominates. So cancer cells enhance the expression of those transports for glucose. GLUT1 and GLUT2 are the two I'm talking about. And also the expression, there's a transcription, ultimately the translation of the enzyme pyruvate kinase, that ultimate reaction in glycolytic pathway. So that's PK is the name of that enzyme for short. But the one, the, there's an isoform of PK made in active carcinogenesis. And it's called PKM. And so the one we're going to talk most about is PKM2 isoform. And when that is expressed, for example, in the hepatocyte, that can lead to an oncogenic state. So different specific isoform of the glycolytic enzyme called PKM2. And that's the topic of that BBA paper. So there are two basic PK genes, PKLR and PKM. They tend to be tissue specific in their expression. And they're kinetically and therefore enzymologically unique at the level of regulation. 
PKLR genes, whose expression is controlled by an alternate promoter. Basically, that's how that happens. Code for a full-length PKL or PKR isoform of pyruvate kinase, where the PKL isoform is expressed in tissues featuring high rates of gluconeogenesis, just mentioned, such as in the liver. And PKR isoform is primarily expressed in erythrocytes and a little bit also in intestine and kidney. And those aren't gluconeogenic systems. Now, the PKM, PKM1 in particular, is expressed in other types of terminally differentiated tissues. And normally when that's expressed, those are tissues that demand a huge supply of ATP uh, that is requiring uh, glycolysis to either feed pyruvate into acetyl-CoA and then TCA cycle, or just using glycolysis directly. And what are those tissues? Muscle. You get PKM expression in the muscle, as I said, because uh, that can become anaerobic. Uh, or the brain, which never becomes anaerobic except during severe ischemia, for example, or stroke. So PKM2, the other isoform of that gene, uh, that subclass of genes, is predominantly expressed in highly proliferative cells uh, with a growing anabolic demand, and that is, of course, embryonic cells, stem cells, but unfortunately also tumor cells. So there are mutually exclusive alternative splicing of the pre-messenger RNA, so these are splice variants. And so the PKM gene can generate either PKM1 or PKM2 uh, mRNA. And that's done by an inclusion of exon 9 and 10, respectively. So those are the exons that you find in those two isoforms that are either or not, respectively, included and therefore translated, ultimately. So let's introduce something else to this um, ontology, gene ontology. The C-MIC oncogene, which is found in many cancers, enables transforming cells, including the transcription of heterogeneous nuclear ribonuclear proteins. These are known as HNRNPA1 and HNRNPA2. They also generate a polypyrimidine tract binding protein called a PTB. So I want you to understand the C-MIC oncogene allows or actually enables transforming cells to transcribe either those ribonuclear proteins, HNRNPA1, A1, A2, or this PTP protein, this polypyrimidine tract binding protein. It means it binds to a long string of polypyrimidines, obviously, in nucleic acid. Now, back to these HNRNPs, they bind to the flanking region, reason we're talking about them, of the PKM exon 9. That's, again, the DNA. And that represses its inclusion and indirectly then causes the inclusion of exon 10, resulting in the expression of this particular variant, PKM2, which I told you is in cancer cells. In addition, there is a serine arginine rich splicing factor, uh, acronym is SRSF3, of course, and that can directly bind to a rather potent exonic splicing enhancer, known as the ESE, exonic splicing enhancer, in exon 10. And that results in the inclusion of exon 10 and the production of PKM2 as well, without relying on an HNRNP intervention. So two different ways to get to 
PKM2. Having that SRS F3 or directly because of HNR and P bind exon 9, excluding it, and in favor of including exon 10, which then generates the isoform PKM2, which is found in cancer. So tumor cell transformation involves a loss of the expression of PKL R and M1 with a concomitant replacement of all those isoforms with PKM2, where even engineered replacement of PKM2 with PKM1 in lung cancer cells significantly inhibits aerobic glycolysis and tumor growth in nude mouse xenograft models. Now, what that tells you, that, that, that data right there, that bit of evidence from the literature, that if you replace out PKM with PKM, with PKM, uh, if you replace out M2 with M1 in lung cancer cells, you lose that aerobic glycolysis and you also lose tumor growth in that nude mouse model. So it looks like PKM2 is implicating carcinoma, you see. However, like so many things in biochemistry, M1 and M2 have been recently reported to differentially co-express with high PKM2 to PKM1 ratios in tumor cells. And all of that still supports the Warburg effect, you know, the aerobic glycolysis. So it's like even when you have PKM1 around, you still get aerobic glycolysis. Importantly, PKM2, uh, PKM2 knockdown in a mouse model of, now this is breast cancer, didn't even affect the formation of the mammary gland tumor. And indeed, in this paper, an upregulation of both M1 and M2 isoforms and, of course, a, a concomitant increase in glycolysis in a CMIC-driven system, which I just explained how that works with an HNRMP, where even the loss of PKM2 didn't affect tumor growth. So it's not as simple as we might think. PKM2 doesn't seem to be necessary, okay? So paradoxically, then, PKM2 expression is not required for tumor formation or progression in some cancers, for example, that breast cancer model I just told you about, and also in colon cancer and pancreatic ductal adenocarcinomas in antigen-presenting cell-deficient mouse models, respectively. So it looks like uh, PKM2 isn't a necessary component of these um, of these cancers. So that that means that PKM2 is implicated, you see, but it's not necessary. And that that doesn't necessarily suggest that it isn't involved, okay? Um, and I'm going to explain to you logically how that works in a moment. So what the data does cause one to do is rethink the pathology, where if you think that simple overexpression of PKM2 um, it's not going to work. And so, in fact, it isn't necessary, nor does it seem to be sufficient for tumorigenesis. Okay, that's what we're saying here. So that's a common thing in deep biochemical discovery when you start getting into disease. It turns out to be a pseudo-paradox here. And a pseudo-paradox is we're going to find out momentarily with a twist. So before I get to what I mean by pseudo-paradox in biochemistry... I want to just finish a little bit more discussion of PKM. This will explain more about its effects in hepatocellular carcinoma. So there's a tetrameric form of PKM2, 
that exists in the cytosol of the cell, and it possesses a super high affinity to its substrate, phosphoenolpyruvate. That's one of its substrates. So at physiological PEP concentrations, the tetrameric form is more active glycolytically in contrast to the dimeric form that is nearly inactive. And PKM2 and dimeric monomeric conformation is reported in non-canonical localizations. So when you're not talking about the tetrameric form, which is very, very active glycolytically, when you got dimers and monomers of PKM2, you don't get them in the cytoplasm. You get them indeed in extracellular circulation. And also intracellularly, you find them in mitochondria and in the nucleus, importantly. So there are a number of what they call in biochemistry, and I like this term, and that's not mine. I like it anyway. Moonlighting functions. Moonlighting functions for PKM2 and cancer progression. So this is going to link back up to this pseudo paradox of PKM2 not being necessary or sufficient for tumor genesis. Sensu stricto. Now, perhaps it is the non-glycolytic activity of PKM2 that's associated with self-proliferation or maybe metastasis and indeed angiogenesis. And maybe we ought to be investigating that. Okay. So, now I'm going to explain to you what I mean by a pseudo-paradox because I brought up the term and I want to make sure that I define my terms. So what a paradox is in my way of thinking is when something is revealed that goes against the general truth but is nevertheless empirically obtained or experienced. So basically not what is expected, but it is what it is. Okay, that's what I mean by a paradox. Okay, empirically, that's what we obtain, but it seems to go against the general truth. So the definition you'll find online, I'm going to just read as, quote, a statement or proposition that despite sound or apparently sound reasoning, the general truth, you see, with acceptable premises, okay, uh, having a logical argument, that is, leads to the conclusion of the argument that seems senseless, logically unacceptable, or perhaps even self-contradictory. That's what's meant by a paradox in terms of textbook definitions. It's just a paraphrasing of what I said. Now, the problem with that textbook definition, which you notice I did not use the word contradiction, is that that definition introduces a concept of contradiction. Contradiction is when you cannot have two competing premises that are both true because then they are a contradiction, okay? You can't, that's called the excluded middle in Aristotelian categorical logic. Of course, you know this. However, you can have two premises that are both false when the empirical evidence concludes neither. In this case, they would be contrary not contradictory. Now, I'm getting all this by synthesizing it through what's called um, the square of opposition. So, in the square of opposition, you have something called an A statement. That's also known as a universal affirmative. So, here we are. I'm going to write one for you. All glycolysis requires regulation 
at the phosphofructokinase locus. That's a universal affirmative. Phagocytosis requires regulation at the PFK locus. I could have easily said at the PKM locus, but I'm just giving you a broader understanding here. Uh, an E statement or a universal negative would read like this from the same categorical logical argument I'm generating. No glycolysis requires regulation of the PFK locus. So universal affirmative, all glycolysis requires regulation of PFK. Universal negative, no glycolysis requires regulation of PFK. Now, how it can be that both statements are false, both A and E, because they claim a universality, right? That was where universal statements, universal affirmative, universal negative. So in that case, you would have a pseudo paradox since it isn't a paradox at all. So when I say pseudo, I mean it's not. Seems to be, but it's not. It's not really a paradox because they're not contradictory, do you see? So you may obtain an irony though, not a paradox, which is when the result of an event is different from its intended or teleological purpose. So ironies can take on the form of, and here's another example, an SSRI or the SSRI, okay, that's a serotonin, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, was prescribed to treat major depressive disorder and potential suicidal tendencies, but, or however, ended up being implicated in the patient's follow-through to kill themselves. That would be an irony, okay? The, here it is again, my irony. The SSRI was prescribed to treat MDD, it's major depressive disorder, and, and it's associated potential suicidal tendencies because MDD has potential suicidal tendencies, but ended up being implicated in the patient's follow-through to kill themselves. That's ironic, you see? So here's another thing, another way of looking at it. Aerobic glycolysis is a hallmark of tumor metabolism as it corrupts metabolic regulation and wastes energy, even in the presence of abundant molecular oxygen. However, its activity, what activity? Aerobic glycolysis may not be the cause or even the result of the cancer but may contribute to it or could simply be coincidental. See, that's also an irony, right? Not a, not a paradox, that's an irony. All right, so let's think about the square of opposition, okay? I'm doing this so that you see that a way to analyze biochemistry and indeed uh, not just uh, biochemistry, but the underlying biochemical processes involved in a disease is to first conduct a logical proof and understand it at the logical level before you ever even get to the point of a hypothetical deduction so that you design an experiment to investigate a disease. And that's what we're doing here. Okay. Now, again, take a look at this. In something called a square of opposition, you have contrary statements and you have subcontrary and you have contradictory statements. So let's go through this, okay? 
There are A and there are O propositions, and they're always contradictory, as are E and I propositions. Propositions are contradictory when the truth of one implies the falsity of the other. Conversely, that also applies, okay? So here we see that the truth of a proposition of the form all SRP implies the falsity of the corresponding proposition of the form some S are not P. Obviously, those contradict one another. For example, now I'm going to plug in on our glycolytic story linked to hepatocellular carcinoma. Don't worry, we're not losing track here. So now I'm plugging this into my square of opposition. Okay. If the proposition all aerobic glycolysis contributes to cancer, that would be a form of a universal um, affirmative or an A proposition. If that's true, all aerobic glycolysis contributes to cancer, then the proposition some aerobic glycolysis must not contribute to cancer. That would be a statement uh, O, okay? That must be false. Similarly, if you take the universal negative, if no aerobic glycolysis contributes to cancer, that would be an E statement. If that's false, then the proposition some aerobic glycolysis must contribute to cancer, which is an I statement, that's got to be true. Okay, so you see how we're able to use logic to figure out how glycolysis may or may not fit into the disease paradigm. Remember, the reason we're doing this is because the evidence that was presented to us from the literature, the primary scientific literature, is that this PKM2, which we think we understood, we think we is carcinogenic because of the way it operates in terms of leading to this pyruvic acid biosynthesis and therefore driving aerobic glycolysis, the Varberg effect, paradigmatic for cancer. But then we went and we looked for it and we saw there are all these cancers where you don't see that paradigm working quite the way it should. It doesn't seem necessary or universal. So that's why we were going through this whole uh, uh, discussion of logic. We're trying to untangle what's going on in the literature by using reason. Okay. So I'm almost done with this. Okay. So I want you to think about how PKM acquires a transitional characteristic to adopt from a highly active tetrameric form I just told you about to a less active dimer or monomer. The PKM to tetramer to dimer monomer transition is going to be regulated, it's been discovered to be regulated by metabolites, such as fructose bisphosphate, the product of that PFK1 I just told you about. It's also controlled by a few other substances, which I'll talk about later. So right now, all I want to do is leave you with, because I've got to stop this, this particular talk and get on with the next, next one, okay? I, I'm, this one's got to end now. It's got to end because we're up where our time is up. But I want to leave you with this hypothetical paradox or pseudo-paradox and I want you to think about what I just said. And when we reconvene here, when I do the next segment, segment four of the authentic biochemistry on a pedocellular carcinoma, talking about PKM in those cell types 
and whether or not aerobic glycolysis is what's driving it. I want you to think about the logical discussion we just had. So right now I'm going to stop uh, our discussion and um, sign off. And then the next time we meet on authentic biochemistry, I'm going to tell you about how these logical discussions come together to an understanding of what the data represents to us in the uh, scientific literature. So this is Dr. Daniel Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry, signing off for now by saying bye for now.